Okay, well, hey, guys, here we are. We're gathering back together. And after a little break over Easter, we're back in our series in 2 Corinthians called Endure, Finding Courage in Weakness. And so um, uh, as we uh, uh, have our Bibles, you can turn there to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, and and uh, this is a really interesting text. And so I want, as we turn there, for you to just ask yourself, and, and we'll have a little conversation around, around influence and around effectiveness. If we can recognize as we come in today that all of us have strong internal desires, we all have external uh, influences that, that compete for our attention, that compete for our affection. And, and, and hey, some of those things are, are helpful. Some of those things are encouraging. And some of those things um, are, are, can be uh, negative. In fact, actually, even when you use the term influence, I don't think we usually think about it in positive terms. Most of us think of ourselves that we're a rock, we are stable, like we are immovable, and yet... We've all been influenced by our families, by um, the uh, place we find ourselves in the world, by the media that we consume, uh, even particularly in social media, right? Social media has a special, unique class of people called what? Influencers, right? Their, their whole like, like vibe is just, let me get you super excited about like $70 flip-flops, right? You know, like whatever it is that time. And so um, influence is not always a bad thing. Um, and, and so if we're disciples of Jesus Christ, we do have to recognize that we're in a world that is not neutral, that's not yet perfect, that's not all evil and wicked, and, and yet there is brokenness and sin. And we've got to recognize that there's aspects of brokenness and sin that do influence us. And if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, we start to read commands and, 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 and uh, indications in Scripture that we're to pursue and enjoy or partake in holiness. And so we need to ask ourselves, what does endurance look like in a world where there is a lot of opposition to God, to, to His Word, to, um, to His design and desire? And so I think we interact as, as Christians and as people in two specific ways, neither of which I think are helpful. Number one is this, we retreat. Okay, yes, there's sin and brokenness in the world, so I'm going to social distance from that. I'm going to mask up from that. I'm going I'm to retreat. I don't want to catch that sin disease. Cases are on the rise of sin, right? So let's move back to sin phase one, and we'll go home uh, and just kind of huddle up, and we'll avoid other people at all costs, you know, you know, people that are doing things that the Bible says are wrong. And when we, except if you read all of it, that means all of us, <laughs> certain point, right? And so the attractiveness of this is that it appeals to our desire for safety. It appeals to our desire to, um, to, to be part of a, a community, right? It's like, hey, we, we just got it right. But what it ignores is that we focus hyper on the sins that maybe aren't as prevalent in our church community. We absolutely ignore the ones that are, whether up front or under the surface. Number two, Rather than retreat, we just receive. We believe the lie from the beginning that you see in the Bible that, that it's, sin isn't something to be taken seriously. It's just God holding out on you. And so sin doesn't exist, or at least the consequences don't the way we think they should. And so sin isn't something to avoid. In fact, actually, what we or the Bible or God's Word would say is sin is really actually something to be affirmed, something to be celebrated, maybe even something to be embraced or engaged with or advocate for. 
And this, this is attractive because a lot of sin just doesn't come out bluntly like, hey, this is going to kill you. Eat it. Right? You know, like, like nobody's like selling cigarettes with like, you, you know, big X's and skulls on them. Right? You know, it's always like, cool camel. Wait, okay, maybe that guy's been gone for a while. Okay. And so this is attractive because sin usually starts off looking really good. And, and it's also usually very popular, right? Because the world just kind of is a river of culture that we want to just dive in. And it's so much easier to just float on a tube on the lazy river of sin rather than actually swim and kick against the current. And so what this problem is, is that it ignores the fact that sin is real, that sin does have consequences, that there's shame and separation and then eventually death. And at times we can see sin manifest itself very basically, in the denial of objective reality. Oh, no, no, things aren't as they seem. God isn't real. God hasn't created people a certain way, right? And so what I want us to know is that sin's promises are empty. And then engaging with the concept of sin is not a new issue. We're not like, wow, man, everything was really humming along until 2019, and then sin showed up. No, every single generation since the beginning of the world when sin entered the world has had to engage with it and it's just been this spinning wheel of different individual and cultural sins that that people individually and collectively have partaken in and so we have to recognize that we didn't start off neutral there wasn't some like amazing golden age this side of the garden of eden where everything was great No, sin's always been something we've had to deal with. And so as Christians, we know we're not neutral, but we do have a new identity. And while we've been made new, we're also called to actually pursue, I think, a dirty word for us in our culture, and that's called holiness. But I want us to know it's for the purposes of joy, it's for the purposes of God's glory. And so we have to ask ourselves, how can we stay actively engaged in the world, not retreat, while also not actively engaging in sin. And so faithful endurance at times is going to require us to engage what we're going to call today courageous division. And so if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to go through the end of chapter 6 uh, into chapter 7. I'm going to start with verses 14 and 15 with some verses um, that I think have been uh, maybe misused, or at least here in the church, not highlighted in the ways that they should be. 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14, starts with this. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal or Satan? Or what portion do the believer share with an unbeliever. And so let's let's start here. Let's pause for a second. And these verses are in a context of this whole letter that Paul's written to a church. So he's talked a lot about what's true about God, what's true about the gospel, before he gets into, hey, here's some necessary divisions. Here's some necessary prohibitions. And so these are necessary distinctions. Other places in the Bible, it says a house divided will fall. And so there's we think, oh no, that means no, no division, always unity, right? That's a big theme in our culture right now. We have unity, unity, and, and yet 
at times, there's division and separation that is necessary for health. There are times that, that we should not think of um, disassociation from others, but actually distinction from or differentiation. See, not all unity is good. Not all unity is life-giving. Not all division is bad or destructive. And so you get to these verses here, the beginning of verse 14, it says, do not be unequally yoked. And if you grew up in the church, it's a very pregnant verse. It's got a lot of meanings to it. And so um, interestingly enough, um, uh, in 2013, there was this movie that came out. I'm sure all of you saw it. It was called I'm in Love with a Church Girl. Anybody see that? No, it got like four on Rotten Tomatoes. Okay, stars Ja Rule. Okay, everybody know Ja Rule Fire Festival? Rapper, if you're like over 40 like me. And, and, and in this movie, he's this, he's this retired drug addict, sorry, sorry, drug dealer, highly successful, trying to reform his life. And he, he, he goes to church and he meets a church girl, which means she had like a nice sweater on and, and, and all these kind of stereotypes. And, and he, he falls for her and, and they go out to a diner and they're, they're kind of starting their dating relationship. By the way, I only watched the clip of this, to be clear. I did not watch the whole film, okay? And, and at this point... Um, He's like, hey, I think I'm falling for you. And she's like, well, well, the Bible says I'm not supposed to be unequally yoked. And he responds the way Ja Rule would. What, you talking about eggs or something? And that's his response. And she's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. And so, like, if you grew up in the church, this was the you don't date non-Christians verse. And you certainly don't marry a non-Christian. And so if you're like coming in today, you're not a believer in Christ, all of a sudden you feel like you've got a scarlet letter on you. We're not supposed to talk to you. So we can't date you. Like all these things. That's not the context of these verses. Yes, this can apply to relationships. Yes, this can apply to marriage. But the context of all these verses, as we'll see as we continue, isn't dating in marriage. It's actually talking about idolatry and pagan practices that were happening in Corinth. That had happened in Babylon, that had happened in Egypt, that had happened today. And so rather than thinking about this on who you date, I want us to be thinking about this in the context of influence. What influences you? Who are you influencing? Because we got to be really careful if we're going to be on mission to engage a world that needs the, the hope and love of Jesus Christ then it can't just be like, oh, you're not a Christian? I can't buy coffee from you. Like, you know, oh, you're not a Christian? Like, you can't come to my house. Like, no, it's not talking about disassociation. It's talking about not participating in that which God has prohibited. It's not disassociation, it's differentiation. And so in these verses, he uses a few different um, analogies. The first one is yoke, which is not talking about eggs or something. I'm going to keep doing it until you laugh. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, no. And so... Um, we, we don't get this, right, because uh, we're not an agrarian uh, economy and we don't even use things this way. But a yoke was something that would tie two animals together so that they could work to plow a, a field. And so they're, they're, they're joined together, bound together, literally like, like across necks together for a common purpose. So if you had two oxen tied up, that, is that plural of ox, oxen, right? Okay, two oxen tied up together. If they're mutually strong, they're going the same direction, incredibly effective. But if you've got like an ox, like a big, strong ox, and like an otter, and they're linked up, like where are you going? Well, you're going where the ox goes. 
In fact, actually, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 22.10, I'm sure you have this memorized, it actually prohibits not plowing together with an ox and a donkey. Well, why? That's, weird. that's a weird law to have. No, because God's saying, hey, that's not going to work. It's not going to be effective. Because what happens is, is if you're bound to someone, or someone is bound to you, whoever is strongest is going to determine the direction. And maybe you're like, oh, I'm, I've been in church my whole life. I read the Bible all the time. Like, I check every box on the app. Like, I, I know I'm the strong one. So I'm going to link myself or, or, or yoke myself to someone else. And like, no matter how strong you are, how strong that ox is, right? If, if you're trying to go in a direction, but the person you're linked up to with influence is kicking against you, trying to pull another direction, or at best, just dragging heels, that it's going to limit effectiveness, limit fruitfulness. And so we're in this place where um, we find ourselves just completely burdened if we are yoked to a culture, yoked to practices that are ineffective for actually producing life. And so um, it's heavy, it's ineffective, and then the yoke, instead uh, of being effective, starts to cause a burden, right? It's pulling on the neck. And see, we, we're yoked, if we're, Christ, if we're a Christian, to Christ. And Jesus says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light for the purposes of us having rest. Number two, he uses this word fellowship or partnership or production. Right here, mercy fellowship, right? We have that word not because it's churchy, but because it means united together for a common purpose. And so he says, hey, what, what common purpose or, or, or how can you unite justice and lawlessness, right? One is bent towards balancing the scales of justice, the other towards greater corruption, rejection of that which leads to flourishing. And so how can they work together if their desires are diametrically opposed, if the goals are different? And so he says, hey, light and, and darkness, that's just as opposed as justice and unrighteousness. You can't mix or fellowship or have partnership with light and darkness because light and darkness serve different purposes and have different designs. And what does light do? Light illuminates reality, helps us see clearly. It brings warmth, right? That's what we love, like, after months and months of grain, we love that the sun has come out because we can see clearly. We can see the moss on our roof and realize that, all right, we got some maintenance to do, right? So, no, it illuminates, it brings life, it brings growth. What does darkness bring? Darkness brings fear. Darkness obscures reality. So we cannot see clearly. It hinders life, it fosters decay. And so you can't have light and dark work together and still have it produce life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I've come into the world to what? To overcome darkness. See, light and darkness, yeah, they're opposed to one another. One is for sure stronger than the other. And the reason you know that is if you're ever in a dark room and someone opens the door and light comes in, the darkness doesn't flow into that hallway though the light flows into the room. So in Jesus, we follow the light of the world, which means that we um, get to uh, be illuminated to reality, warmth, clarity, life. And so you can't have like a little bit of righteousness and a little bit of justice 
and still have it produce something that's good. Like, oh, well, you know, our laws, our culture, society, they're, they're mostly just. Okay, well, that means that there's some injustice. That means there's brokenness. That means there's sin. I think about life, culture, and the world like, like a burrito, and you've got all the goodness of the carne asada and the, the, you know, the, the white rice and, and the black beans and the queso and all that, and they're like, yeah, uh, by the way, the sauce is poison. But anyway, the rest of it's totally good. Right? Don't eat the poison burrito. doesn't matter how many good ingredients you have, right? And so what we're talking about when we talk about sin is the fact that it has impacted and infected everything. So we still have to know how to re-engage. All right, then it comes to this. In verse 15, it says, What accord has Christ with Bilal? It's another word for Satan. And this is um, really, uh, he's saying, you can't have an unholy symphony. That word accord actually means agreement, harmony. It's where we get the word symphony. You can't make beautiful music um, where, uh, where, where the mashups don't work, right? Like, um, uh, what, 10 years ago, right? There's that show Glee, right? And they're always doing mashups, right? And it's like, oh, cool, all the Journey songs together. Like, that sounds great. Like, um, I, I'm a, a former frat guy, so like when Jay-Z and Linkin Park got together on that Collision album, I was like, that's fire. Sounds so good. I'm like, you can rock out to that. You can work out to that, right? And so like, yeah, that, that makes sense because they're, they're kind of on par with one another. But he's saying, you know, Christ and Satan can't mix together. And so you can't do a mashup of In Christ Alone and Cardi B's WAP. Tracking? You can't put those together and have it be edifying. He's saying you can't have... Christ and Satan singing in the same choir together because they're singing different songs. Jesus Christ comes into the world and he sings a song of mercy, of grace, of holiness, of yes, I see you in your sin and I'm inviting you to new life. He is singing this song where he says, I am going to sacrifice for you. And instead, Satan comes and sings another song. And he sees a song of accusation, a song of condemnation, a song of death. And he says, ultimately, I want you to sacrifice yourself for me. Can't mash up those songs together. See, the word Bilal here that means Satan, it actually also translates to worthless. Satan sings a worthless song that seeks to divide you and God. John 10.10 says it this way. Uh, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. One song of destruction and death, another song of life and joy. So you can't mix those two. You can't have an unholy symphony. And then he says as well, number four, what portion does a believer share with an un? believer, and it's talking about what you share together. Again, the context of this is worship. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your energy? And so, we have a new identity with Christ. We've been united. That means we have a different purpose than those who don't know Jesus at all. We've been made new, and we're there to spread hope and joy and love to those around us. And so, uh, I want to be clear, though, again, like, I don't know where you're all at coming in today. That distinction from unbelievers is not disconnection. 
Right? Jesus was sent into the world. Jesus came from the throne of heaven into an unholy, broken world on a mission of joy and salvation. We are to what? Love our neighbors. Love our community. Love the people around us. You can't do that if you're completely disconnected. And so we're supposed to pursue and love our neighbors with the compassion of Jesus Christ. And so sin isn't something that we can ever effectively socially distance from. Because we're all carriers of it. However, if we're going to like engage with the world that has no desire or design to follow the God of the Bible, then we better make sure that we're prepared. Right? Healthcare workers, right? They don't just like um, go all in, you know, when somebody's got COVID and like, you know, lick their hands, high five each other, hug it out. No, a little PPE, some training on best practices so that we can be a help to those around us, engage with those around us without, Lord willing, being consumed and destroyed. And so, when we ask ourselves, when we give our time and our energy and our attention to, that's what gives us influence in our lives. How you spend your money influences what your desires are. How you spend your time and energy influences you. And so I want you to ask yourself, what are you giving influence to? Meaning, what are you allowing or encouraging to shape and influence your life? And so this includes what media we consume, how we spend our time, right? So I want us to ask ourselves some, some pretty clear questions, some application if you think about this. Who are the people who have the greatest influence in your life? Maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's somebody else you work with, like your spouse. Like who are the people who have the greatest influence in your life? What is their deepest desire, goal? What's their worldview? How do they see the world? How do they understand God, sin, salvation, life? What's their goal for life? What's their goal for you? Do they even actually know you? Or are you just like, like drinking a big gulp full of influencer all the time? I think we're required to define in our minds what are the nature of the relationships we have with people. When you think about who has the most influence or impact in your life, Define the nature of the relationship. Meaning, ask yourself, are you the influencer or are you the one being influenced? Are you the one having an impact on them or are they having an impact on you? And then ask yourself, where can you partner? Where can you join up? Where can you work together? And I think that's important, right? Because again, we're not retreating. And so we still need to faithfully engage. And that doesn't mean like, okay, well, I can't hang out with any of my non-believing friends. No, it's fine. Like, Jesus was a friend of sinners. Jesus went to parties that the religious people hated because they were so much fun and the religious people weren't, right? No, so like, no, Jesus is there. And he's, and he's like, hey, he tells Zacchaeus once this amazing sinner that like the whole community hated, shows up and he says, a party's come to his house. Jesus shows up too. He says, hey, today salvation's shown up to your house. Like, we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. Like, do not disassociate, differentiate. Those are different things. It means know who you are. Be rooted in your identity in Christ. It means, it means being intentional about how you're influenced. So right now, I mean, you've come in today. We're going to do 
a 35, yeah, 35, 40. We know it's 40. It's going to be 45 minutes, so we're okay, right? And, and you're like, yeah, I was at church for about an hour. The guy talked for about 45 minutes. But then, like, your screen time on social media is like six hours a day. Good luck. You're not spending time in the morning. Like Curtis talked about last week in his sermon on prayer, just like, hey, setting time aside to, to pray to God, to read his word. What that's doing is opening yourself to influence, to be influenced by the God who made you, the God who knows you, the God who loves you. The church can't compete 40 minutes a week when we're giving ourselves tens and tens of hours to, to a world that says, no, 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 that, no that's profitable. No, that's good. Come over here. We need to ask ourselves, what's influencing us? What media are you consuming? What voices are you listening to? And let me encourage you. When you came to church today, right, read your Bibles and pray. Not, not because, like, God will be mad at you if you don't, but to, but to, again, open yourself up to be influenced by the Lord who knows you, loves you, and sacrifices for you. All right, part two, look at 2 Corinthians verses 16 through 7 1. It's not just a prohibition that, hey, let's, let's stay away from these things, but we need to press into something else. And it's, it's the character and nature of God we're going to see here, verses 16 uh, through 7 1. It says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, quote, I'll make my dwelling among them, and I'll walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. Verse 18, and I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. 7-1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spring, sorry, in spirit, uh, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God the Lord. And so these verses begin, right? Verse 16 is kind of the, the last little bit of, uh, of comparison. And he says, what agreement, meaning what, like, like voting together, what treaty does um, two parties have right here with um, the temple of God with idols? He's making the comparison. Hey, you're there in Corinth. They've got temple worship of all these false gods that are empty and worthless. You, he says, are the temple of the living God. What treaty could you possibly have together? Like, don't declare peace where there is no peace. Don't just say, well, we don't want to be in conflict. Like, we're, we're the church. Like, we, like, if the world wants unity, we want unity. Like, no, no, no. You were set apart. We are set apart. Not separated from the world, but set apart and distinct from the world. And so that means that we are different. And so we don't just um, uh, have a prohibition against certain things, but, but we don't knowingly place ourselves in a yoke of slavery and saying, let's link up over here. Like there's a, there's a reason as a, as a pastor, I have no problem in love getting together with other pastors, other churches to, to partner to pray. And I have no issue at all with partnering across faiths to serve and love our city, right? We, we can unify with any doctoral statement uh, nearly our backpacks for elementary school kids. But we cannot and should not pray together because we're praying to two different gods. One is living, the almighty, active, and the other is dead and is worthless. As that unholy sin that we just talked about. And so... 
He calls us and says that through the Holy Spirit, we are now a temple where the living God dwells. And so as we think about a term like holiness, I think it gets a bad rap because um, it does require some division and at times it requires self-denial. We don't like that because we think that somehow self-denial is a lesser than life. Why would I deny myself? If I want something, if I desire something, I should follow that. It's clearly going to lead to my joy. Like it's going to make me happy for sure. No. And so if God's restricting me, he must be this cosmic killjoy that God's just holding out on me. And again, that gets back to the beginning of the Bible where Satan shows up in a paradise and says, God's holding out on you. There's more and there's better and there's not. And so we misunderstand Misunderstand this, every prohibition you read in Scripture is actually an invitation to greater, more flourishing life. Every prohibition in Scripture is an invitation to a greater life. It says you are a temple, the temple of the living God. If you trace the narrative of the Bible uh, through uh, all of Scripture, you see this constant theme of God dwelling with His people. They did begin in that garden. And then sin enters through humanity's decision and the enemy's lies. And there's exile. We've been exiled from the garden. Like we, as, as glorious and gorgeous as today is, this is not paradise. And, and so, out of that, it's not because God is evil or wicked, it's because God is holy, perfect. And so, that's, that separation is because he cannot allow sin to dwell with perfection or it would, again, poison burrito, the whole thing. And so God knows we cannot effectively purify ourselves. Right? So it's like, well, exile from Eden. Do whatever you can to clean yourself up. Right? That word holy means clean, purified. But no, don't clean yourself up. No, he doesn't do that. God just continues to pursue with his presence. And so we see um, God dwell with his people um, in the, uh, the wilderness through the tent and the tabernacle. Eventually we see uh, God's people in the promised land with a temple and God shows up and, and dwells with them in the temple. And then we see God most perfectly show up to dwell with his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Jesus says that we are his people, that we are the body of Christ. Being part of the church individually, collectively makes you part of the body of Christ. And so he said, you now through the Holy Spirit is where the living God dwells. He's present with you. And so our God is living and active as opposed to those lifeless idols, uh, as we said. And so the point of turning away or separating or being unyoked is not just so we can avoid the bad stuff, not get dirty. No, God does not prohibit us from consuming things which are actually life-giving, but rather God is protecting us from that which has the potential to consume us. God wants our flourishing. God wants our life. And so God 
uh, through Paul as he's speaking here. Paul goes Old Testament. There's three Old Testament quotes that we'll go through quickly just to make and drive home the point of what holiness is. It's not exclusion from the world, but rather to endure and preserve in it. And so number one, in verse 16, we see presence and power. Verse 16 is quoting Leviticus 26, verses 12 and 13, and it says this, Old Testament, and I, this is God talking to his people, I will walk among you, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, you shall not be their slaves. I've broken the bars of your yoke and made you to walk erect. And so God doesn't say, hey, you, you've yoked yourself with sin, and you're being drugged down, you better like unyoke yourself so that you can finally go live a better and flourishing life. Or, hey, I've noticed that you're singing in an unholy symphony. You better change your tune so that you can come sing with me. No, instead, God says, hey, I know that you are tied to a yoke of slavery of sin. I'm going to show up. God showed up in Egypt. He removed his people from slavery. God breaks the yoke, breaks the chains of slavery that we have in our sin. And he says, now, now that you don't have that burdensome yoke of sin that's just weighing you down, you can stand upright and you can walk with boldness and purpose because I, the chain breaker, the yoke breaker, have shown up present in your life to give you not more slavery, but rather freedom to actually give you life. So go ahead and walk now. Walk in new life and experience the presence and the power of God. See, when the New Testament calls us to, to holiness or, or to avoid sin or to repent or to change your actions and attitudes, it's not something we do on our own. He's saying, I have shown up in power and I'm going to empower you to do what you've been called to do. And so... We don't repent and change our attitudes and change our actions, hoping that then we will be saved and God will have favor for us. No, we repent. We walk in new life because we've already been saved. Because we've already been granted favor in God. The context here is new identity. Paul's writing to Christians who've already experienced the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, when we've experienced healing from our sin, that we know that it's not our power that brings us to God's presence, but it's God's presence in our life that empowers us to walk out the life he's called us to. All right, number two, purity and protection, verse 17. Verse 17 is actually quoting Isaiah 52, verses 11 and 12. So 700 years earlier, and he says, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. This is God writing to an exiled people in Babylon. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So this is written to people, God's people, who've been defeated, God's people who've been dominated, who find themselves in a city and a culture in a place that is completely opposed to the God of the Bible. They do not have influence. They do not have power. They do not have prestige. None of them are influencers on social media. No, instead, they are, they are seen as the worst of the worst. They are seen to be as people to be trampled on. 
And here, with power and presence given and the yoke broken, he says, you can walk out of slavery next time. I've prepared a path for you. For the Corinthians, it meant don't engage with idolatry in Corinth. For us, it means actually looking around at what's the, what's the flow of the river of culture that our world's going through right now and what can be received and what needs to be rejected. And holding on to and remembering and being reminded of what's objectively true about God and about creation. See, we're in Babylon now. And so we need to be discerning on what can be received and what can be rejected. And he says that we're invited to purity. He says, hey, you don't need to participate in that which, which stains with sin because we're vessels of the Lord's presence, he says. Earlier here in 2 Corinthians, we talked about being jars of clay that carry the treasures of the gospel. And while that means that, like, you know, outwardly we're just, we're not that impressive, but it, it doesn't mean that God can't continue to clean us, continue to call us to purity, to actually leave exile, to not pursue that which will destroy us, but rather leave behind what seeks to ensnare us. And then he says that he's leading us forward. When he talks about protecting uh, your rear guard, he's saying, I'm going to, like, I know you're vulnerable. I know you're weak. I'm strong. I've got you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to sustain you so that we don't need to fear. We don't need to fear because, lastly, here in verse 18, we have God's promise and his provision. Verse 18 is quoting Jeremiah 30, 11 and 12. And Jeremiah 30, 11, 12, rather, uh, actually, I think it's verse 9. Let me see if I can turn it right. Yeah, Jeremiah 30, verse uh, 9. Oh, man, dang it, I'm pulling it off. Okay, that's all right. Somewhere in Jeremiah, so you guys quote that, it says this With weeping they shall come, and with pleas of mercy I will lead them back, for I'll make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim, one of the tribes, is my firstborn. And so here's people walking out of exile who have an awareness and a humility, an awareness of, hey, we're not perfect, an awareness of our own sin, awareness of our need for God. And so when we're humbled and aware of our own sin, he said, hey, you don't need to run out in wilderness and clean yourself up. No, you need to run to God who's already received you, who already knows you, who welcomes you with the promise. He says, I'm going to take you home. Why am I going to take you home? Because you're not an orphan out in the street anymore. No, you are now in Christ. You're part of my family. And I'm going to lead you home. This is a promise of making it home. As heartbroken, contrite, humbled, and stained even from our sin, all of us need to remember the promises of God. See, when we sin, when we sin, when we stumble, the enemy likes to come in and say, Ooh, oh, I know this track, I know this song. Yeah, back to the condemnation. Back to the accusation. And instead, no, we need to remember the promises of God, that God is never done with us. He's not done with us because of his depths of mercy for us and the efficacy of his promises to us. If you're in Christ, you're a person of promise, a promise not just of 
flourishing life now, but of life forever. Free from sin, free from disease, free from brokenness. And God provides what is needed for his promises as part of a new family. Part of a new family. He provides and he guides. He says, I'm going to make them walk by, I love this phrase, this is what's so awesome about this Jeremiah quote, which is Jeremiah 31, 9, if you're taking notes, Jeremiah 31, 9. He says, I'm leading them by brooks of water. It means that you're on a new journey now. Yeah, we're journeying, we're walking, it's, we're not yet home. But with the power and presence of God, with purity, with protection, with provision, we're by streams of living water. That we always have access to living water right there beside us. And, and I just feel like a journey through the desert is awful, but a journey by a nice stream is beautiful. So that means we can have joy in our journeys, even when we're difficult. He even says, hey, I'm clearing paths for you. Like, like I'm, I'm going to clear a path so that you don't have to stumble or certainly not stumble to a place of being defeated. We're all going to stumble along our journeys. But he sustains us. He guides us. He provides and he guides. And all of this is because of his identity as a loving father who's medicine of brokenness and leads us, he says, on a path of wholeness. Body and spirit, right? Chapter 7, verse 1. Clean ourselves from defilement of body and spirit. God's invitation to us in holiness is one of comprehensiveness. See, we are not mystics who only focus on the soul. We're not just like, well, no, whatever you believe in your soul, whatever you worship in your soul, that's all that matters. So nothing you do with your body, nothing you do with your sexuality, nothing with how you spend your time and money, none of that matters as long as your soul's lined up okay. We're also not just plain materialists. Where we're like, yeah, I mean, just, just make your life look good. Just do good things. Do better as you engage in Society, as long as your actions are unimpeachable, who cares if your soul's not free from pride? No, we're comprehensive people. And where what our bodies do and, and what has been done to our bodies impacts us. What our souls believe impacts how we live our lives. And so we have to see here that all this pursuit, he says, uh, is one that leads to completion, to, to wholeness. And so we don't pursue purity to secure the promises of God. That's religion. And we don't reject uh, what God has called us to do in terms of holiness because that's idolatry. Instead, what God's inviting us to is wholeness. And so he says that our identity here is beloved. Our desire is wholeness. Our motivation is reverence for the Lord Almighty, the all-powerful God who's made everything any call to holiness is an invitation to greater and more flourishing life. Last verse is the middle of that. See, I think when we think about holiness and set apart, that it, it means that somehow we're on this journey by ourselves. We will see that it's also communal. Last verse is verses 2 through 4. This is Paul writing to the church. He said, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I don't say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's some unity right there. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. 
I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. We are a people that are set apart, but we are not separate. A call to holiness is not a call to loneliness. God doesn't say, unyoke yourself from unbelievers, be different and distinct, and be by yourself. But instead, he calls us together to be part of a greater community, to not be alone, to not be isolated. See, we are, we are people who require communal connection. That is one, I think, benefit, if you will, of this last year, is recognizing how much we need to be with other people. How difficult and how despairing our lives can be when we're isolated, or worse, when our only impact of the world is from here. We need to be with one another. We need to see one another face to face. We need to engage with one another. We need to be part of a community that builds one another up towards love of what God has for us, serving, loving one another. Here Paul says, hey, we're not being abusive to one another. We're serving one another. We love one another. And so we form a healthy gospel community where we often just talk about, hey, a healthy gospel community is one where we love the gospel of Jesus Christ and we give people time and safety to work it out. This is a place where you have time and a place where you have safety. And we don't affirm what hinders life and purity, but instead we're people who've been unbound. Unbound from sin, unbound from the world, unburdened from condemnation, and instead we're bound together with one another in love so that we can endure. I started to serve by saying that I know a lot of pastors who've tapped out or churches that are closing and whatnot. I don't want us to be in a place of despair because as Paul says, you are my pride. You give me joy. You give me comfort. I just want to affirm, uh, even just after a week off from the pulpit, just what a joy it is to get to be part of Mercy Fellowship, to get to be part of this community here in Stahoma, Chicago, to get to be connected with other churches in our region, in our area, and across the world through Acts 29 and our other partnerships. As God's been good to us, even in the midst of difficulty and trial, even, even after a break-in this week, God's been so good to us. I'm talking on a microphone from Reach Church in Everett because they love us and care about us and bring us some stuff to us all. So we're not alone. You're not alone. We're not alone here. We're not alone in our community, in our region. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit. Yes, we have God who's also given us each other in the church. So we can be a community that experiences joy, even in affliction. So while I ask you to ask yourself, who has influence over you? The last question I want you to ask yourself, who's been an encouragement to you in the midst of a difficult situation, in the midst of affliction? Who has given you comfort and joy, even in difficulty? And maybe if you think about it, at some point express gratitude. Send a text, send a message to a friend, to a family member, to somebody in the church, somebody outside the church who's, who's encouraged you. We all need encouragement to love one another, to continue on so that we can engage with compassion and conviction, not fearing the world or retreating from the world, but rather engaging faithfully as we continue to trust Jesus. Let's pray.